strong, strong word can be translated, I want to certify something, to make it very, very clear. But I want to make it extremely clear. Oh, brothers, it's a evocative of address that the gospel that was preached by me is not in accordance with man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I was persecuting the church continuously, and even beyond hyperbole is the word for beyond there, beyond measure. I tried over and over again to destroy it, and I was continuously advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. And here's the reason, because I was more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia, and I returned in to get, again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by the face unto the churches which are in Judea, which are in Christ, but they were continually hearing it over and over again. The one who persecuted us in time past is now continually preaching the faith which he once attempted to destroy, and they were glorifying God in me. Father, what a testimony. May that be our testimony today as a church as individuals, that people would glorify God in reference to the transformation of the changed lives that you have wrought in each one of us. God, you are the God that delights in taking foolish things and foolish people and imparting them with wisdom. You're the God who likes taking weak and broken things and fixing them and using them for your glory. And God, we have this treasure this morning, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the good news in clay jars, so that the excellency of the power may all be of you and not of us. Lord, help us to understand the significance of this supernatural gospel that you have revealed and made known to us. God, I pray today, if there's someone that's come here today and they've never responded to your call of the gospel, that, God, that they would humble themselves and come before you and simply say, Lord, I need a Savior. God, you are a God like no other God who pardons iniquity and by, passes by the transgressions of your people because you are a God that delights in mercy. Lord, that is the gospel. 
Christ became sin for us, the one who knew no sin, so that we could be seen as righteous in Christ Jesus. Father, bless the teaching of your word. Help us to understand it, God. I pray, Father, that you would guide my words, Lord. You would protect me from my own enemy, my flesh, Lord, and that I would try to explain your truth the best that I can humanly, God. And then, Holy Spirit, you take and teach it and you write it on hearts today. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I've I've called this sermon the supernatural origin, purpose, and result of the gospel. So um, our teenagers, I've been trying to have um, an outline for you to follow. I don't have one this morning, but if you grabbed a piece of paper on the back and you want to just write those three things down, and then I'm going to quiz you afterwards. (laughs) The supernatural origin, purpose, and result of the gospel. You can see here that Paul is really, feels like he's almost on trial, and he's giving his personal testimony, and he's saying, before God, I am not lying. I have never sought to please men, is what Paul said. I have been trying to persuade men to come to faith in Jesus Christ I have no desire to please people, but only to please God. And then he begins to give his, his defense. And he's saying, I, I, before God, I am not lying. I am telling you the truth that my gospel has nothing to do with people. It couldn't be any further from man's philosophy and man's way of thinking. Man typically thinks, I'm a pretty good person. And Paul thought he was an excellent person. He said that he was blameless by the law. Can you imagine saying that you are blameless? That's, that's what he claimed, Philippians chapter 3. But the law that he thought made him blameless actually exposed his sin. He said, I would have never known covetousness, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. I would have never known lust. I would have never known the evil desires of my heart if the law hadn't exposed it. Yes, he kept the law meticulously. And he probably could say, you can't find anything that I have done to break God's holy law. But he knew in his heart of hearts that his conscience had convicted him of violating the law of God heart. And so this this plan of salvation, Paul says, it never originated with me. I never went and conferred with any other apostle about this. I was on the road to Damascus. I was bent on my self-righteous deeds until Christ arrested me on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, my life did a 180. I heard a preacher sometimes said, man, Paul did a 360 on the road to Damascus. Well, I hope not. <laughs> he did a 180, though, and he was going in a completely different direction. 
God's plan of salvation is so incredibly wise. Man could have never came up with such a gospel that a creator would walk into time and that he would be crucified, laid behind a stone, as we sang this morning. And the Roman government was so fearful, they put a guard around the tomb. They put a seal on the tomb. And early the first day of the week, there was an earthquake. And the earthquake moved the stone, not because Jesus was trapped, but to show the world that he is alive, he is risen, he is not here, just as he said. What a plan. Left to ourselves, we would have never come to God. He came to us. One of my favorite passages about God's wisdom being so far above our wisdom is Isaiah 55, and a lot of us know it. But I want to give the full context of that verse. It starts in verse 6 where it says, Seek you the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon This is our God. And then he says after that, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For as the heaven is above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. This gospel is not according to man. It's so different. It is so profoundly unique. God has mercy, and God pardons and it's abundant we can't comprehend it I can't understand how good and gracious my God is I'm every day you and I have to experience his grace if we even want to have a relationship with him don't we the eternal plan of salvation originated in the counsels of the Godhead from eternity past it's an invitation. Gospel is an invitation for you to come unto God. This is how it starts out. He says, seek me and I will be found of you. God invites us to look for him. Call upon him while he is near. Jesus said this, while you have the light, believe in the light. When your conscience is moving you, and when you know that you need a Savior, God says, come unto me. I'm calling you. That's the gospel. Call upon me while you're near. Believe while you have the light. The purpose of the gospel is so that you and I can respond in faith and receive mercy and to be abundantly pardoned. That is the gospel. And the result is that God is so glorified above anything you and I could ever imagine. Let's look at the supernatural origin of this gospel in verses 11 through 14. In 11 through 14, Paul says, But I make known to you. Now, actually, the word but is the, the Greek word for. And so he's tying it in with what he just said. I am not pleasing men. I am pleasing God 
For I want to certify to you, O brothers, that the gospel that I preached by me is not according to man. I'm not pleasing people because my gospel has nothing to do with the way man thinks. The word according to means it lines up with human philosophy. My gospel doesn't line up with human philosophy, Paul says. And our gospel today does not line up with human philosophy. It does not line up. It is not in accordance with man's way of thinking. It doesn't conform to humanistic reasoning. Think about the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 20. And it doesn't make any sense to you and I. In fact, we look at that parable and we kind of can identify with the guy who worked from the morning hours and a guy who got hired at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and at 6 o'clock he calls all the workers in and he says, the guy who started at 5 o'clock, here's a day's wage. The guy who started early in the morning thinking, man, I'm certainly going to get a two days wage. I've been, I've been taking the brunt of the heat. I was here early in the morning. He comes up and he says, here's your day's wage. And we look at that story and we say, that's not fair. And that's what they say here in the Bible. And Jesus said, why do you call him unjust? Is it because your eye is evil? You don't understand that God, who took the initiative to call you by his grace and by his good pleasure, and that we don't merit any of it? It's all of God, whether you work at 5 o'clock or whether you started at 3 o'clock in the morning. The thief on the cross, what did Jesus tell him? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel is not according to man. And that makes people upset. That's not fair. How can God do that? Because God is just. God doesn't have to be fair, but God is just, yes. He is absolutely just. And God justifies the sinner, not based on any merit that you and I could ever earn. I imagine that guy who was working early in the day was probably grumbling and complaining about his work like I do it's not according to man it's not based on merit grace eliminates all boasting all boasting it's gone it is a free gift you and I have nothing to brag about it's not according to human wisdom it's there's no boasting grace flies in the face of all human wisdom and that's exactly where Paul had been his entire life. He had been walking out a pharisaical, religious, meticulous life where he kept all the law blameless, and God had to stop him in his tracks and say, this is not the way you come to me, Paul. The gospel is contrary to human wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, for the preaching of the cross to them who perish is foolish, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. His second argument, it's not according to man, is found in verse 12. For I neither received it from man, it's not in accordance to man, and the preposition from is twice. There's one is in the compound verb, receive it from, and then from man again. So he's emphasizing the source of it has nothing to do with man. The source is God alone. And it's the strongest way of saying but in the Greek language, but it 
came through the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation about who Jesus Christ is. That's what he needed to be revealed about, who Jesus actually was. On that Damascus road, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul needed a revelation about who Jesus actually is. So do you and I. It was divine revelation that helped Paul understand this. There is no other way for you and I to understand God unless God first came to you and I and imparted to us his divine revelation. How will we call upon him who we've not heard? How will we believe on him who we have not heard? How will we call upon, I don't know how it goes, you know the verse, it's in Romans chapter 10, it says something like this, but how can I call upon him who have not heard? How will I believe in him who have uh, without a preacher, and how will they preach unless they be sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and proclaim glad tidings of good things. In other words, there's no way that you can believe without a revelation. Now, that's not something mysterious. Paul's not saying here, I got some kind of mysterious revelation on the road to Damascus. No, what Paul did, he had a face-to-face -face encounter with a living God that was resurrected, and you and I need the same thing. We need a revelation that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We need a revelation. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is eternally God, and that we come to Him, we call upon Him as Lord and Savior. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in Him. He is none other than God incarnate. And Paul needed a revelation of that. And God's Word is what reveals it to you and I. Paul was stopped in his tracks. Men has not been left to his own devices how to figure out to come to God. You've heard those stupid analogies that God's like a mountain and there's all these different pathways to the top of the mountain. No, God has not left us to try to figure out which path. Jesus said it like this, I am the path, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. No one else was perfect. No one else died in your place. No one else was raised from the dead to give you new life. And that has to come through revelation. And that's why God has given us his word to reveal it to us. There are two ways you can destroy Christianity. One, like the world, they just renounce the idea of divine revelation. They look at the Bible and they say, it's just an ordinary book. It's just a history book. It's just a religious book. A bunch of people putting their myths and stories and fairy tales all together. That's the way the world wants to dismiss this revelation. But Satan is too sly to come into the church and tell us that this is a myth and this is a story. We, we're, we're not going to fall for that one. So what has Satan done? He has tried to replace the message. Satan replaces the gospel with a watered-down version that does not renounce sin. Christ died for sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and Paul said, I am the chief sinner. And looking at this passage, you can understand why he felt that. 
A watered-down gospel says, come to me and I will make you happy. Come to me and I'll give you coffers in your bank account, whatever it is. It is a watered-down version. Or it goes to the other extreme and it adds to what God has already done in Christ. It says that you need to replace it with rituals. You need to replace it with religion. You need to replace it with your works. Instead, Christ is a robust, growing, spiritual person that you and I can experience in our hearts. That is the gospel that Paul said came to him by revelation. Revelation is not simply an intellectual conviction either. It's far from it. Revelation about the person of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. I had a revelation of the fullness of the Godhead. That God so loved lost people that God entered into this world to die in my place. And that's what Paul experienced. It so dramatically changed him that it was the dominant force and passion for the rest of his life. That is the gospel that you and I have received as well. And if any of us are in Christ Jesus, we are new creations. The old has passed away and all has become new. You and I have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the revelation about Christ. It is dramatic. It changes everything. And then... In verse 13, he gives another four. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Three fours. That makes sense? Yeah. One in 11, one in 12, and one in 13. Our third four. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, being exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. So three things, Paul says, I am not pleasing man. And here's my defense, my gospel, it's not according to anything man could ever make up. Man has this idea, if I somehow balance out the sheet and I do more good and more bad, that God's going to somehow figure it all out, and you're going to say, okay, you're in heaven. He says, no, that's not according to man. God says, you've got to have complete righteousness. You have got to be holy and pure completely. Now, how are we going to do that? I'm going to impute it to you as a free gift. That's the gospel. And it's according to revelation. And that revelation is about the person of Jesus Christ. It's not some kind of mystical experience. It's not just an intellectual consent to who Christ is. It's a personal acceptance of the robust powerful person of Jesus Christ who now dramatically changes you and he's your passion, he's your purpose, he is your all in all. And that's what Paul was revealed to on the Damascus Road. And then thirdly, he says, I'm not pleasing men because of this transforming dramatic grace. Look what it did to me. Look what it did for me. The very things that should have disqualified Paul were the very things that God used to make him the apostle who he was. I want to share with you this morning the things that you think may disqualify you are the very ways that God demonstrates how much he loves you. It doesn't matter what your past was. 
It doesn't matter what you thought or what you've done. Christ has forgiven it. And all you have to do is say, Lord, I want to receive it. That's it. The work is done. The last words of Jesus were this. Telestai, which means it is over, it's finished, it's paid in full. Now receive it. What else could change us? Nothing else could. And that's what Paul is saying. You know my former life. You know where I was going. You know what I was all wrapped up into. Paul was so filled with ritualism, so filled with religion. And ritualism is the enemy of a relationship. I don't want you to have ritual this morning. I don't want you to have religion. I don't want you to join North Valley Bible Church. I want you to join the family of God. I want you to come to know Jesus. This is the relationship that he wants you to have. It's not religion. Rituals have no power to deliver from a corrupt past. None whatsoever. What the law could not do and that it was weak, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not by the flesh but walk in the spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. That is our gospel this morning. Paul said this, writing to the Philippians, though I might have confidence in the flesh, and maybe you feel like this morning, yeah, I've got confidence in myself. I'm a pretty good person. And Paul said, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any man think that he has confidence to trust in the flesh, Paul said, I'm more. Try to beat Paul you know, if you want to be a good person. If any man thinks that he's got something to trust in the flesh, I'm more than anybody else. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was the stock of Israel. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was better than the Hebrews were. Touching the law, I was a Pharisee. I had 300 or 675 laws or whatever, 637, I think, that I added on top of the law. It wasn't just the law. I was going to be a perfectionist, Paul said. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is the law. I was blameless. But when he met Jesus, this is what he said. Those things that were gained to me, I count loss for Christ. So our gospel has a supernatural origin. It's not according to man. It's through revelation. And it can change us and transform us from what we used to be. Point number two, the supernatural purpose of the gospel. So let's look at 15 through 17, and let's see the purpose of the gospel. We've got a temporal clause that takes two verses before we finally get to the, to the, to the clause, the, the um, independent clause. We've got this huge hanging participle up here in the beginning, in the beginning of this verse. And it starts out, but when it pleased God, and then we've got a pronoun, relative pronoun, describing who God was. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and another pronoun, and who called me, and how did he do it? Through his grace. Then we've got an infinitive. Why did he call us? To reveal his son in me. Then we've got a purpose clause that he might preach him among the Gentiles. And here's finally our independent clause of this entire verse. I did not confer with flesh and blood. That's what he's saying. I didn't talk to anybody. Now, what's he saying first of all? He says, I didn't talk to anybody because when it pleased God. 
the supernatural purpose of the gospel. The purpose is God is pleased to take you and I, and we don't need to confer with anybody. When Jesus Christ changes your heart, you don't need a confirmation from me. You don't need a confirmation from a priest. You don't need a confirmation from a prophet. When it pleased God who separated Paul from his mother's womb and called him through his grace, I did not need confirmation from anybody because I knew what God had done in my life. I was 17 years old. I was in a bedroom. I was reading my old Schofield reference Bible. I got up every morning and I would read it. I'd come home every night because I knew there was something missing in my life. And I got to Romans chapter 10. And I read through Romans chapter 10. And it says the gospel's not so mysterious that you need somebody to go up to heaven to bring it down. You don't have to go across the sea for somebody to find it. But it's near you and in your mouth that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you will believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Patrick Cross, you will be saved. And I shut my old Bible, and I prayed, and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life and change me and forgive me my sin. I didn't need any confirmation from anybody. I went to school the next day, and all my buddies must have thought I was a nutcase because I kept telling them about what happened to me last night in my room. I didn't see stars. I didn't see anything, nothing mysterious. But I came face to face, and I had a living relationship with Jesus Christ from that time on. And I've never looked back. Well, I'll, I'll, I've never, God's never looked back, and God's never let go of me. Let's put it that way. Um, it pleased God to save Paul. Because Paul, what he was doing, he says in 1 Timothy 1, 3, 1, 13, he says, I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Paul was zealous for God. He had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Going about trying to establish his own righteousness, he had not submitted himself into the righteousness of God. For the law of faith is the end of righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And so Paul thought he was doing God's service by opposing this gospel. He thought he was going... To, to achieve all that he wanted to do as a Pharisee. He was climbing up the corporate ladder. But he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And here's the point I want to make this morning. When you do things contrary to the will of God, and we all do it, and we can do it out of ignorance. Maybe you don't know about God. Maybe you don't understand who Christ was. And you've been doing it ignorantly. You've been living your life on this path for who knows how long. But when you are confronted with truth, here is the test of genuineness. Paul said, when God revealed himself to me, he says, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. God called him. Yes, God separated him. God gave him grace. But Paul said, I was ignorant. Now I'm responding and I'm confessing I was wrong and I need a savior. It pleased God. Second, when we choose when God chooses us, it's not because he's choosing us to the exclusion of other people. Notice this. Paul didn't say, I'm choosing you because I love you and I don't love other people. He says, I am choosing you because I want you now to go to other people. This is a, an election to service, not an election to salvation. 
And why did God choose Paul? It's because God knew his past. He knew that this guy had a pedigree of a Pharisee. Not only a Pharisee, but the son of a Pharisee. Acts 26.3. He was schooled by the most noted rabbi, the Rabbi Gamaliel, and he probably went to the University of Tarsus and had an incredible education, and we know that from his letters because he quotes poets from nobody else that, that, that you and I would even have heard of. I can't, even, I can't even pronounce their names. And so this guy, Paul said, I am going to separate you because I know your background. This morning, God has a purpose for calling you. There's only one like you, and there's only one person that has your background. And God says, I am going to take that person because he's unique, and I'm going to use him in this way. And I look out across this church this morning, and I see God doing that in so many different lives. And God gets all the glory because it pleased God who knew you before you were ever born, what you were going to be like, and he says, this is my ministry for you so that you might reveal Jesus Christ. And look where he's going to reveal it. Look where Paul says God's going to reveal Jesus Christ, who separated me from my mother's womb and to reveal, reveal Christ's son in me. This is where God, this is where people want to need to see God, Christ is in you. Third point about this supernatural purpose of the gospel. God reveals his son in us before you and I can ever proclaim it to others. Look at the order here. God called me through grace, didn't deserve it. The purpose is to reveal his son in me. I, I need to know God. I need to have a manifestation of who God is in, in my life. And here's the final result, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. A deep, deep dependence on God. God calls us by grace, doesn't he? Well, what does grace promote in Paul's life? Let's kind of look at what it promotes in his life. Grace promotes a deep dependence on God. 1 Corinthians 9, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Paul understood grace probably more than anybody else. He needed grace more than anybody else. And if God was going to reveal himself in him so that he could preach to the nations, he knew that he needed grace. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. I am not meet. That means I'm not qualified to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And the grace of God was in me. It made me labor more than those around me. But it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God within me. That's what grace does for you and I. It gives us deep sense of humility. Secondly, grace gives us an incredible sense of indebtedness. Paul felt so indebted because of what God had done in his life. And I hope this morning that you feel that sense that, God, I owe you everything. My life was bought with a price. I am not my own. I belong to him, and I'm indebted to him for everything. And Paul had that sense of indebtedness. 
In Romans 1, 14, he says, I am a debtor both to Jew and to Greek, both to wise and to unwise, both to barbarian and to Scythian. He says, so much is within me is I am ready to preach the gospel to you in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Paul said he was a debtor. Thirdly, grace gives us a deep sense of humility and it destroys all pride. Paul writing Timothy says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Grace had enabled him. Nothing else. No human teachers. Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry in spite of what I used to be. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent man. I persecuted the church beyond measure. And then it gives us a ministry to others where we can equally reach out to the lost. Paul knew what it meant to be lost. He knew what it meant to be in darkness. He knew what it meant to be in chains. And so Paul was able to cross all kinds of barriers to reach into people's lives and to minister. He says, For this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show a forth all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe hereafter into everlasting life. And lastly... Let's look at the supernatural result of the gospel, 22 through 24. I'm going to kind of skip 18. It's kind of a a journal of where Paul went. It's important information. It's good for us to have this, so I'm just going to read it, verses 18 through 21. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. This is important information because it can pinpoint exactly when Jesus Christ revealed himself to the Apostle Paul. Chapter 2, I'm going to take a little... little, um, uh, Side trip here. Chapter 2 starts out, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. That was the Jerusalem Council. They got together and decided, what really is the gospel? Do you need to be circumcised? Do you need to change your diet? Do you need to act like a Jew? And they finally kind of hashed all that out, kind of the book of Galatians. And then Paul says, I went up to that church council 14 years after this. He says, for three years I spent into Arabia. Now, we know when the Jerusalem Council happened. The Jerusalem Council happened in 1 A.D. 49, okay? Paul says, I went up 14 years after I'd been in Arabia for three years. So if we do our subtraction, that means that Paul went into Arabia, came out of Arabia in 35 A.D. Because he went up to Jerusalem 14 years after that, 49 A.D. Three years he spent in the Arabian desert, so 35 minus 3 means 32 A.D. This tells us how soon Paul saw the resurrection. It authenticates the historical accuracy of the Bible and a literal, bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ that these men were not hallucinating. These men were not making up stories. They were not making up myths. They were eyewitnesses of it, and it traces it all the way back. Now, why is that important? It takes 150 to 200 years for a story to turn into a myth. And Paul is talking like three years after the crucifixion, Jesus Christ met him on the Damascus Road. So this is important information for us to have. He saw none of the apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. 
Now concerning these things, verse 20 says, I write to you before God, I lie not. All of this is the truth. It's not according to man. It comes straight from God. It's his revelation. I used to be this kind of a scoundrel, and this is what God has done in my life, and now I'm a preacher of the gospel. I'm not lying. And those who never saw me, those people who never saw me, but they were scattered everywhere because of my first pers- fierce persecution, they see the results of what God has done. Testimony is backed up by a changed life. The, Ju- the Judean church were scattered as a result of Paul's persecution. And he says in verse 22, I was unknown by face to those churches of Judea which are in Christ. They were running and hiding everywhere because of Paul's persecution. The Judean churches were the result of his persecution. They were completely unknown to him by persons. They fled out of fear. These churches kept on hearing the continuous reports of Paul's transformation. There's only one rational explanation for Paul's dramatic conversion, and that he was formerly a persecutor for the faith that he once now is now preaching, is that Jesus Christ radically changed him and this experience was real in his life. And who gets all the glory for that? Jesus does. Verse 23 and 24. They were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he tried to destroy. And they kept on glorifying God in me. A changed life is the most powerful endorsement for the gospel. God is most glorified when we submit to the most difficult and unnatural challenge to follow him. You think about how difficult and how unnatural this must have been for Paul the Apostle. I think we kind of remove ourselves culturally from this. I I complain when I have to get out of my comfort zone. There's a lot of things that I don't like doing, and I'm a coward. I say, God, I don't want to have to do that. God, you find somebody else to do that. And look what he did with Paul. Can you imagine having letters from the chief priest to go to Damascus to arrest Christians? Everybody who respected you, everybody who looked up to you, your father who was a Pharisee, who raised you to be a Pharisee, the prime student of Gamaliel, the lawgiver of Jerusalem, and now he is going to go into the city of Damascus, the very city that he'd gone to arrest Christian, and walk in the synagogue and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. God is glorified. Most when we take those difficult and unnatural challenges and we say, yes, Jesus, I am going to follow you. Rise up and stand on your feet, Jesus told Paul. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness of the things which you have seen and the things which I appear to you now. I'm going to deliver you from the people and from the Gentiles and to whom now I send you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, so that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and inherit among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly division. This gospel is not according 
to man. What is the gospel like? The gospel this morning, I want to leave with this thought before we take the Lord's Supper. The gospel is counterintuitive. It seems like a contradiction. Nevertheless, it is so true. It is not according to man. We must die in order to live. It's not according to man. We must lose our lives if we want to gain it. We must become poor if we want our lives to be enriched. We must become a slave if we want to be set free. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God, the supernatural origin, purpose, and result of the gospel. Father, this morning, Lord God, we want to thank you that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we thank you this morning that God, that you demonstrated your love for us. God, we thank you that even when we were enemies in our mind by wicked works, yet you have reconciled us. God, we thank you that it is so simple. No matter where we're at on the road of life, God, you are willing to extend your mercy. Lord God, we thank you for your wisdom and the way that you have created even our past experiences so that you can use them to advance your gospel now in other people's lives. God, this morning we pray that people will glorify God because of the change that they see in us, that we're not who we used to be. Our vocabulary is not what our vocabulary used to be. Our habits are not what our habits used to be. Our passions are now in a different direction. May people glorify God because of the change that you have wrought in our lives. God, this is an invitation for anyone right now, Lord. God is calling. Seek me while I am near. Call upon me, and I will be found of you. And I will abundantly forgive and show mercy. That is our God. Your thoughts are not ours. Your ways are not ours. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to ask you just to remain seated, and if I can have... passages just for instruction's sake we've read these many times but um, and our men you can stay seated for just a second this is a solemn solemn time when we take the Lord's Supper it was instituted by Jesus himself the night that he was betrayed and he took the bread and he took the, the wine and he symbolically said that they represent me. And you, you think about a loaf of bread. It's one loaf 
and it's broken in many different pieces and all of us partake of that that same loaf and in the same way as the body of Christ we've all partaken into Jesus Christ and in the early Christian church this was done probably on a weekly basis and we at North Valley Bible Church do it every month but we want to follow this because it reminds us of what Christ has done for us and it is out of all the traditions of the church, there's, there's only two of them that he wants us to, to, to fulfill and, and, and repeat every as a regular ordinance, and that is baptizing a follower of Jesus, confessing that I'm an old sinner that's been buried, and I've been raised to new life. And this one also represents salvation in the same way, that I'm a partaker of the, the, the brokenness of Christ and a partaker of his blood. And, and so it's to be done with with a lot of reverence and self-evaluation. But again, it's all grace. You don't earn the right to take the Lord's Supper. Christ has made you just. He has made you right before God. And so this is just an opportunity to confess if there's any unconfessed sin. And, and this morning you may say, you know, I'm not familiar with this tradition and I'm not from this church and and I'm not sure what it's all about. And, and you can just let the, path, the that plate pass by you. And no one's going to think anything different. Because the, the Bible's clear here. It says, whoever eats this bread, whoever drinks this cup, in an unworthy manner, is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner is actually bringing judgment upon himself because he's not discerning the Lord's body. So this is a serious matter. But he goes on to say, Paul goes on to write, for when we judge ourselves, then we're not going to be judged. And when we are chastened, we are chastened by the Lord so that we're not condemned with others. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another and don't come together for judgment. Because I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if those men would, would come forward, and, and i just like to uh, ask Sean, if you will give thanks then for this bread that represents the body of Christ. When he had given thanks, Jesus broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body.
flesh and drink my blood, you have no life.